Good evening. Um, I'm Charlie Gross, and I'm in the psychology department here. And it's my privilege today to introduce Marcus Rakel, who will give the 1998 Stafford Little Lecture, sponsored by the Princeton University Public Lecture Committee. Uh, Dr. Rakel is known for his pioneering research in the development and use of imaging techniques for studying the functions of the human brain in cognition and emotion. Uh, using these powerful and non-invasive methods, uh, Dr. Rakel and his colleagues have markedly enhanced the understanding of the biological basis of language, of perception, of attention, of memory, as well as of such uh, disorders as um, stroke and depression. Dr. Akel originally trained as a neurologist and has been on the faculty of Washington University in St. Louis for most of his career. Uh, reflecting the interdisciplinary nature of his work, among his current titles at Washington University are professor of radiology, professor of neurology, professor of anatomy and neurobiology, and a professor of biomedical engineering. Dr. Eckel. Well, th thank you for that introduction. I, I'm, for the first time in my public speaking life, I am losing my voice. So we'll try, I'll try the best I can to tell you what I have to say. And thank you for the introduction. It almost sounds like I'm a bit unfocused. I can't figure out what department I work in. Uh, what I, I would like to do uh, is to tell you a bit about the imaging world as it's developing. If you can't hear me, let me know, and we'll try to figure this out. You can't. Maybe this will take a little over. There's a disadvantage to being tall. <laughs> I'll hold this. Is that helpful? Okay. All I need is a th all. Yeah, I'll clip it on my beard. Anyway, given the diverse nature, uh, as I understand it, of this audience. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Yes, I can clip. It works. <laughs> What I would like to do is to introduce you to the uh, world of imaging, to tell you a little bit about its history, and then to give you a view of some of the things that we're doing. This, it would be really impossible presently, given the explosive nature of this work, to in any reasonable way cover the whole spectrum of things that are currently being studied in the human brain. So I just want to give you my view of some of the things that are currently of interest to me and hopefully in doing so will give you a bit of a flavor of what this world is all about and what's going on here. If I can have the first slide, just to put this uh, whole thing in perspective, uh, it's important to view this kind of work in the context of the whole enterprise of trying to understand the relationship uh, between the brain uh, and behavior. And in this uh, the upper box here of what I have done and what others have done as well is to paint all of the tools that speak to that relationship. And as you see, they range all the way from various imaging techniques all the way over to pharmacology and molecular biology. And each of these disciplines obviously speaks meaningfully to this important relationship 
between the brain, which we've depicted across here. This is a logarithmic scale so that over here is the whole brain and over here is something the size of a molecule. And behavior, which is simply depicted as events occurring in time, and on this scale is everything from a millisecond to the average lifetime of everybody in this room. So into that matrix, you can paint all of these tools, which are currently speaking in various ways to the relationships that we wish to understand. An important element of all of this, whether you're working at a cellular, molecular uh, level uh, or you're working with humans, is ultimately to understand human behavior. And if we're going to do that, we have to connect with humans, their brains and their behavior. And so that if you uh, want to identify the tools that speak directly to that, you can eliminate most of these in here and you're left uh, with various imaging techniques and more venerable electrical techniques. So what I'd like to do is to tell you a bit about the roles that these play in this kind of work and something about how they're being used. Um, the tools uh, that are uh, primarily being used here are depicted uh, on this slide. Uh, this is just an anatomical uh, cross-section of the brain. This is kind of how imaging techniques look at the human brain. We slice it up electronically as kind of like a loaf of bread and look at sections of it. And the thing that really uh, triggered the um, excitement in this area was the introduction of the CAT scan or X-ray CT, which as you recall, uh, um, burst on the medical world in the early 1970s. And of course, it's literally revolutionized the way in which we practice medicine in the world. But a byproduct of that was to stimulate all sorts of interest in other ways of looking at organs of the body. And so one of the first that emerged was a positron emission tomography, which derives its name from the radioisotopes that are used. And it, it just looks at the distribution of radioisotopes that are administered usually by a vein or occasionally by inhalation. So, from a scientific point of view, it's a means of doing tissue autoradiography, but without the necessity of cutting up the organ. We just do it electronically. So in this instance here, what you have with X-ray CT, a view of the anatomy of the brain with positron emission tomography, you have a pure view of the function. And the function that you're looking at depends simply on what you've labeled and how it accumulates. And in this particular picture, the dark areas have a higher metabolic rate and the white areas have a lower. And while you might kind of infer the anatomy from what you're looking at, the point of what I will say a lot about tonight is that this picture has a tremendous dynamic quality depending upon what you're doing from moment to moment. So Pattern introduced the idea that you could look at the function of the brain um, in a variety of different ways depending on what you injected. And then the third player, which again you're more likely to be familiar with than PET, is MRI. And again, many in this audience have had MRI scans. And as you can see from the kind of anatomical image that's here, that it provides an absolutely spectacular view of the brain and other organs of the body. And while this is depicted as a slice, you've obviously, many of you have seen the three-dimensional uh, renditions of this that are really quite spectacular. And it's largely used as, again, a tool for looking at more detailed issues of anatomy. But recently, as I will tell you about, uh, it's become possible to not only look at the anatomy, but the function of the brain using the same tool. Now, 
Because all of this has been uh, kind of going on over the past, oh, now 20-some years, but it hardly seems like 20 years, the, 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 there, there are tremendous antecedents to this, uh, as it's true in many areas, but I think it's especially true here. And while I'm not going to begin to touch on any many of the details in this diagram, this has been a bit of a hobby of mine to, to put the history of this down in some meaningful way. Uh, I am going to refer to bits and pieces of this to go as we go along to just give you a little bit of the background to all of this, because it comes out of physiology and studies of behavior, various imaging techniques and electrical techniques, uh, now going well back over a century. Now, there's a key uh, physiological observation that connects all imaging to behavior. And that little observation was made by this man. His name is Angelo Masso, who was a, a very uh, innovative Italian physiologist who uh, experimented widely across many areas and disciplines. But he, like a variety of other people of his time uh, in the late 1800s, was fascinated by why the brain pulsated. Now, any of you, uh, many of you, or most of you who've had children or seen young children, realize that where the, where the skull bones have not uh, fused, uh, you have a soft area in the skull, and in that soft area, if you look closely at it, it pulsates. And Maso had noticed this, as others had, and they were speculating about what it meant. And the uh, one speculation was it had something to do with blood flow in the brain, but nobody had any clear-cut way of uh, measuring that. But Monso made an absolutely, I think, spectacular observation. In studying this, he was looking at subjects, in fact, two, and he wrote a book about, who had had some kind of neurosurgical uh, intervention, which left them essentially with an adult fontanelle. And so they could observe these pulsations. And uh, as was Maso's style, he came up with a means by which he could record this and put it onto a, a the venerable smoked drum and record uh, the changes. And while recording this one day in this particular fellow, he made the following observations. Now what you have here, this is right out of Maso's book. This is a, a tracing of the blood pressure and this is the tracing of the pulsations over the brain. And he was going along, and it was nearing noon when he made this observation. And at noon, the clock struck uh, in the room, and the bells of the local church tolled. And what you notice is that there was an abrupt change in the pulsations over the right frontal cortex. Now, it was the custom at that time uh, to say a prayer. But obviously, here was this subject strapped into this device, and it was not convenient. So he, uh, but he did ask him, he said, should you have said a prayer at this point in time? And again, the moment he asked the question, up goes the pulsations over the uh, frontal cortex. And one could uh, speculate a, a lot about what that meant, but he, he had the, uh, the foresight to do the next, which to my way of thinking was the first functional activation experiment ever conducted on the human brain in which he said he had his subject multiply 8 by 12. And what you can see now, the tracing from the brain, uh, is the top trace. And you can see as he has asked the question, the pulsations go up. And as the answer is delivered, they go up again. And this is fortuitously over the right frontal cortex. And I think 
one could probably generate imaging data to show that indeed there were uh, hemodynamic changes underneath this. Be that as it may, he had the foresight to relate this observation to changes in circulation and behavior. And this was picked up um, by a number of people and then largely uh, forgotten for many years. But it is this relationship, simple as it sounds, and today we still don't understand exactly why it takes place, that is at the foundation of the imaging story. So as we talk about changes in the cellular activity in the brain, uh, we will be viewing them through changes in, these, in blood flow uh, in the brain, either measured directly with PET uh, or uh, with magnetic resonance imaging. Now to give you a kind of a 20th century view of what Maso might have seen had he had the right device, uh, imagine the following experiment in which you are placed in front of a, you're in an imaging device so that your head is surrounded, uh, and you're looking at a television monitor on which there is this single little uh, dot in the middle of the screen, and we measure over the period of half a minute the blood flow in your brain, and then minutes later we come along and deliver this very large checkerboard which is a tremendously powerful stimulus to your visual system and measure it again and we compare the two and if all uh, works well uh, then we should see a difference now on top here what you have is an image of blood flow in the brain of a normal individual and imagine the nose is here and the left ear is here so it is as if you're looking down on this brain and so the back area of the brain here where visual areas uh, reside, uh, you can see that blood flow is higher here in this case in which you're looking at this checkerboard. And you might imagine, but I wouldn't twist your arm, that in the control state where you're just looking at the screen, it's a little less. But what emerged very quickly in this imaging world was not to look and guess, but to actually subtract images so that instead of just looking at this, we take the difference between this image and this image and get this kind of a picture. And at that point, it's abundantly obvious that something has occurred, in this case, a change in blood flow in the brain. Now, one of the things, again, I won't belabor, but just to point out, is that we wanted to be able to compare across people and to look at commonalities among people and of course, if you look around this room, everybody here's heads a little different shape, brains are a little different sizes. So very interesting strategies which continue to evolve today uh, allow us to, if you will, warp one brain into another. So as you look across a panel like this, you might have a series of measurements which then end up as an averaged image that looks like that. So much of what I will show you today uh, will have this look to it and has been derived in this way, either as a measurement of blood flow or something that came out of an MR system and looked very similar. Now, there is an additional twist to this story because at this point, if this was what we had, we would still be measuring just blood flow in the brain and it would all be about PET and nothing about MR. But there was another strange twist to this story, again, we don't fully understand the underlying physiology, which is an important area of research. But nevertheless, it's a very important lever. Imagine again the exact same experiment. We have a slice through the brain like this, and we have 
the blood flow change that I've just shown you in a group of individuals now here in the back of the brain produced by this gigantic stimulation to the brain. And as many of you know, the major fuel that the brain uses is glucose or sugar. It burns this up to produce energy to conduct all this sort of business. So it would come as no huge surprise that the glucose utilization also goes up in this very same area. But what came as a huge surprise to ourselves and others is that the brain seems to use no additional oxygen to get this done. That if you can think about it, many of you have maybe knew about uh, you know, runners, sprinters, who sprint for 100 yards and do it all without the use of oxygen. And yet when you run a marathon, uh, you would definitely use oxygen because you would never make it. But the brain, for these brief periods of time, seemed to use glucose uh, without burning oxygen. Well, this has an interesting consequence to it. And that is that if the blood flow, the delivery goes up and the utilization doesn't, you suddenly have increased oxygen in a little part of the brain. And this little increase in oxygen was the lever that magnetic resonance imaging needed to get into the business. So before I comment on that, it, what we're looking at here then when I speak of an activated brain is this increase in blood flow. Of course, the blood vessels go up and the oxygen consumption doesn't. And as a result, the amount of oxygen we take out of the blood goes down. Now, the story behind this uh, magnetic resonance imaging thing is interesting a bit in its own right. Many of you know Michael, of Michael Faraday and his uh, absolutely seminal uh, work on electromagnetic induction. But as a result of his interest in magnetism, he, among other people, had been looking at things that were potentially magnetic. And naturally, because hemoglobin contains iron, it was a candidate. And in his early records, he was actually studying the magnetic properties of dried blood. And he actually found none, but he wrote this comment, should try liquid blood. And it was Linus Pauling who actually picked that up in 1936. He begins his 1936 paper by saying, this talks about this observation, and he did look at uh, uh, liquid blood and was first to describe the fact that it changes its magnetic properties when you add or subtract oxygen. So as oxygen is on or off, you change the magnetic field properties. Well, magnetic resonance is based on differences in magnetic field properties in the tissue. And here you had a means of getting at this. And it was uh, Seiji Ogawa just down the road from here at the then Bell Laboratories who put two and two together and said, by golly, you could do this with magnetic resonance imaging. And he did this uh, absolutely seminal little experiment in which he looked at a rat in which just breathing room air, and you see these little dark lines on here, uh, those are veins. And obviously veins have less oxygen in them than arteries simply because the brain has taken it out. And it was very simple then to put this, uh, this animal breathing room air on 100% oxygen and the veins disappeared. And that's been called the blood oxygen level dependent signal, which is now the fundamental basis of functional magnetic resonance imaging. 
So we then have a set of relationships, and I belabor this slightly because it will be formed the basis of an argument I want to develop a bit further along here. That when the activity of the brain increases, the flow increases, the oxygen consumption less so, and we get this difference, or a little whiff of oxygen in the brain, which provides an important signal to track what's going on. This is just a diagram to kind of say the same thing, so I won't belabor it. And if you look at any number of paradigms in which you look at these kind of changes, whether you look at it uh, with fMRI or with PET, if you go down through this, you can see very, very many similarities. So we're essentially looking at the same kinds of images. Now, I would say, but I won't uh, get into any details, that MRI has a lot of flexibility in doing very fancy and exotic things these days with these kinds of signals. That will not be a central point of what I want to say. I'd rather talk in more general terms about the sorts of things that come out of this work. But keep in mind that virtually everything I have to say could probably be done with either technique. Now, um, some of you, I know for sure, have heard me talk before and have seen this slide before and think probably, oh my God, here it comes again. Uh, <laughs> and to you, I apologize, but I think, I think the paradigm I want to tell you about a bit is a useful way to introduce a number of issues that have come out of this kind of work and allow me to say some things that I think most of you have not heard me talk about before, all in the context of a relatively simple paradigm that was developed for this kind of work. And the objective of this paradigm, which was uh, concocted in St. Louis with the uh, great help of Mike Posner uh, in the early 1980s and published in 1988, was an attempt to take this kind of imaging work into the human brain and answer a more human-like problem, and that is, uh, how do you read um, a single word uh, as a foray into studying of language? Many of you people who have not heard me talk before may well have seen this diagram because it appeared in Scientific American a number of years ago. It was by the late Norman Geshwin and depicted the general anatomy of how the brain processes a word as you might read it so that information would come into visual cortex, pass forward, pass forward into this area of which for historical reasons is known as Wernicke's area and then forward into another area of historical interest known as Broca's and up to the motor cortex and you say what you see. Now that whole story is largely based on patients who have had lesions, again largely strokes. So the simple question that one would ask is, well if you looked at the normal brain, is this really even approximately how it works? So that's what got us. Uh, going on this thing. And the strategy, again, I, I don't want to overplay uh, the history here, but it is important to recognize that all of this didn't derive in the last 20 years. The strategy be, uh, that, that was applied to this, uh, ta this problem and that permeates this entire field is, was one that really originated with this Dutch physiologist, Donders. Uh, who developed a design by which you compare tasks and looking at the difference can infer the kind of processing that is going on in the brain. And his only tool was to measure differences in time and such things as error rates. But here we had the opportunity to 
actually look at what was going on in the brain. So how does one apply that strategy to this rather simple uh, problem of reading a word aloud? Well, to do so, you obviously have to open your eyes. So the first thing we need to know is what happens when you, you in fact, open your eyes. So the, the way one does this is to image the, with the eyes closed, image with the eyes open looking at a screen, and you just look at the difference. You could say, okay, we now know that. We'll set that aside, and we'll ask the next question. What if words appeared on that screen, which you would subsequently ask to, be do, to do something with? So we can use the information we've gathered from this as a kind of a background to subtract that away when words appear on the screen. And now we know and can begin to make some statements about the kind of activity that is generated in the brain when you see a complex object even when not asked to perform any particular job with it. Once we've satisfied ourselves that we have some view of this process, we can then ask you to read the very same stimulus and again subtract out what, we, uh, what was related to perception. And then finally, uh, for reasons that uh, probably are not terribly germane tonight, but we added another twist to this particular experiment. Um, we asked subjects, having seen the noun that was on the screen, to generate an appropriate verb. So if you saw the word car, you might say drive. And for the sake of what I want to say tonight, I would like to make the distinction between reading a word aloud, which for everybody in this room ought to be a very easy task in your native language, but if words, these same nouns, are presented rapidly on the screen, uh, and we're asking you to generate a verb, I would venture to say that for everybody in this room, this would suddenly become a very difficult and awkward task. And it is the difference between something that is routine and something that is new, novel, and awkward is one element of the story that I will talk about. Well, if you did such an experiment, I mean, what might it look like? Uh, and I'll give you the overview first, and then we'll delve a little bit more into the details of this. Um, this, again, is an image uh, that you may well have seen in one form or another in various places. When we published our paper in Nature a number of years ago, uh, of course, they always ask if you have a nice picture for the cover of Nature. So as kind of a joke, we concocted this picture, and we lost to a fossilized weed. <laughs> And I dare say that this picture has had more of a life than that weed, but um, it's been exceedingly useful to kind of give, again, an impression of how this kind of experimentation evolves. Uh, over here, are the, you can imagine now, you're just standing there kind of looking through a transparent brain at things happening. And as you open your eyes, not surprisingly, in the back of the brain, in the areas of the visual cortices, uh, you see an increase in activity. But the addition of these areas, when you consider that these are now, these, you have this, and then you present the words and you subtract this, this is what is added to the brain's activity when that complex set of, that complex symbol of a word is added to the screen. Then if you ask an individual to read the very same word and subtract all of this away, you are then left, um, with changes over where, what we call the motor cortex, well, which is natural because you're now speaking aloud, so there is motor activity. 
And, you know, to see what you expect is very helpful initially in this kind of work. Anyway, increases in the, over the motor cortex. And if then we uh, um, ask you to generate a verb and subtract all of this out, you see none of this, but the assumption at this moment is that that's all still there, but we've just parsed it away by the tricks of imaging. We see areas in the frontal cortex and the temporal cortex that become active. So the notion that has evolved and the general strategy that is followed here is to use this kind of comparison approach, subtraction, if you want to use that word, um, contrasts others have used and various mathematical tricks to do this. But this kind of typifies the sort of strategy that people employ. And if you can look at it, care to look at this in a bit more detail, it looks a bit more like this. Uh, what you see on the left-hand side up here are the very same images that we just, that I just showed you. But now what I've done is to cut a few sections through the brain with the nose up here and the left ear over here, beginning a bit higher up and going a bit lower down, to give you just a little bit better flavor for the, the kind of the complexity of what's going on, even when looked at at this relatively crude resolution. And with today's devices and so forth, we can be much more precise. But for the story I want to tell tonight, it really doesn't matter a whole lot. But the notion that's conveyed here is that, that as the complexity of the task increases, the brain adds processing components, a relatively straightforward idea until you get down to the most complex. And a number of interesting things came out of this, even at first blush, such things that this piece of brain, the so-called cerebellum, while we knew it to be a very important player in motor activity, announced for the first time that it was a big player in cognitive activity. And a number of such things came out of this, which kind of led us to believe that it might have some, uh, provide not only confirmation of what we already knew, but maybe provide some new uh, insights. So anyway, it looked like this. And then serendipitously, another observation occurred. A lot of this, as much of science, is, is, is not a well-planned experiment, but the result of a serendipitous observation. And this arose initially out of the uh, difficulty we were having in using this funny verb generate task in subjects uh, uh, who we were interested in studying language laterality. And these were now patients and not normals. So they were practiced on the task. And we saw nothing of what we had seen before in terms of these elaborate areas in the front and the back of the left side of the brain. So the question ha came up then, well, what happens if you take a difficult to perform new and novel task and now learn it rapidly? Does it change uh, the way the brain deals with this task? So a graduate student, Julie Fees, uh, as part of her thesis work, worked on this. What happens behaviorally if we give you a simple list of words uh, to read? Uh, and provide nouns, uh, verbs for the nouns. Initially, you're a bit slow, but with time, you get increasingly rapid. And by this, I mean over a period of about 10 minutes. So there's a vast improvement in your performance. And what you tend to do is to choose the same word each time. So you become very stereotyped, very automatic in what you're doing. And if we change words on you, you go back to where you were in the first place. So the question then was, well, if things disappeared on this, where were they going and what was happening? And what was happening, uh, again, to our surprise, was 
not just that areas that had been doing this more complex task got more efficient but were still there. They were completely replaced by other areas. So that as you recall, when you instituted this task, uh, this more difficult task, you got areas in the frontal cortex, temporal cortex, this big chunk of cerebellum, a few others. Ten minutes later, when you were now performing this task, none of these areas were anywhere to be seen. And they had been replaced by these areas over the, what we call, sylvian insular cortex, which had been there when you read the word, but disappeared when you did this task. So, in a matter of minutes, the kind of underlying architecture with which the brain performs this relatively simple, uh, in one sense, task, but new and novel and different for you, uh, has changed. So it would be if we had done this imaging experiment and cut down to this line here, and then had this done as a practice task, this line and this line would be identical. Is that, I think, reasonably clear, I hope? Now, the story could kind of stop there, and uh, uh, the, uh, if you will, the print version of it does. Uh, but there, is a, there are problems uh, that have been, uh, have been raised with this kind of an approach to the brain. And they largely center around the notion that as you increase the complexity of a task, that you simply add new components of the brain to carry out that task. This guy, this simple idea of, well, whatever, it just, you just add more processes. You need to do something new and different. You add to what you already were using. But people have had serious trouble with this notion ever since Donders introduced this general approach over a century ago. And the argument is that how do we know the brain does this? How do we know that areas that were used under one set of circumstances continue to be used in the same way just when you change the complexity of the task? Well, people that, like myself and others who talked about subtraction techniques have over the years been barraged by questions, well, you know, this has been a problem for 100 years. What do you, why do you think you've solved it? But the beauty of this of the imaging is that for the first time, we don't have to guess whether the brain changed its strategies. We simply can look. And the way to look at this is to look at the other side of the coin. But what I have been showing you is what goes up. But the other side of the coin is, well, but what goes down? So what I'd like to introduce to you is that there are not only increases, so-called activations, because which is the buzzword of the field. And we all carry this funny impression around with us that the brain kind of sits there and waits to be activated. And what I'm going to eventually suggest to you, it's not exactly that way. It's active and deactivated and activated. So let me try to get you into this. This is exactly what you've just seen, except it is a black and white version. And the reason for getting away from color for a few minutes is that it's very difficult to display positive and negative designed images in color and not bias you one way or the other. So I'm going to black and white to avoid that. So what you're looking at here is exactly what I've just talked about. And the question is, well, as these things are being added along the way, what else is going on in this brain? And for many years, this first off wasn't even looked at, and I, in retrospect, I'm not sure why we or others didn't. And then uh, it began to dawn on people that maybe something was going on here. And this is kind of what it looks like. This is exactly the same task, 
set of tasks. But now what we're looking at is areas of the brain that actually decrease their activity as the task complexity increases. So when you open your eyes, not a whole lot happens. These are just puffs of smoke, and I wouldn't make a lot out of them. But look what happens when you start to read words. Whole areas of the what we call orbital frontal cortex, that stuff that sits down right above your eyes, um, and particularly in the back of the brain, right along the midline here, you see dramatic decreases in activity along the midline. Now here, as you progress, you see uh, even further uh, decreases uh, along in uh, these areas. So it is very clear that if anybody had a suspicion that the subtraction technique was being undermined by these, this interplay between uh, areas, uh, that suspicion is largely confirmed uh, in imaging because you can just simply look at it. Uh, just to give you a, a more dramatic uh, view of some of these things occurring along the midnight. Now this is a cut through the brain, front to back, so you're just looking at that slice right down the middle. So now the front of the brain's over here, the back of it's here, this little line runs along through the visual cortex, and these are slices running kind of across from one side of the midline of the brain to the other. And I want to emphasize the rather dramatic changes that are particularly occurring in these strange areas that reside along the middle part of the brain. So as we de develop these tasks and look at what's going on, you have to envision not only areas going up, but areas going down. And this raises uh, all kinds of questions about how we even think about things like this. Uh, Again, just to remind you about the learning paradigm, if you look at what transpires then in a more complete way, what you see is, as before, these areas drop out here, as I pointed out, but those areas up in front that had gone down continue to go down even further. And yet areas in the back of the brain actually that had gone down come up. Now, I am frequently uh, asked, well, gee, isn't this just plumbing? I mean, after all, I mean, if you're going to put something in some place, you have to take it from someplace else. And let me uh, assure you that the brain is not made this way. It would be, I think, a bad design. But furthermore, we're talking about changes in these measurements of, a, of less than 10%. And the brain is capable of making adjustments in its circulation and metabolism of at least three or four-fold, as we see in patients with seizures. So this is well below any capacity of the system to deal with it. And if you think about this, you're seeing changes that have no particular spatial correspondence that would suggest that, gosh, if I have to, if I have to deliver something over here, I have to deprive this place of it. So this is, I think, reflecting major physiological adjustments in the system. And again, just to show you the changes that occur as you learn this paradigm, you get this increase in the back of the brain where it had decreased and further decreases in the front of the brain, which were already down. So what do we think of this? Uh, let me assure you that this is not peculiar to this particular paradigm, but anybody in this room who has done imaging or read this literature knows that we see this kind of stuff going on all the time. So the question then is, what in the Dickens is going on in here? And how do we think about it in the context of this rather simple paradigm? And I would only point, the only point to make of this slide is that they're virtually seen with MR and PET. These are 
parallel studies done with MRI on the top and PET on the bottom, and these are the uh, decreases, and they're seen uh, everywhere. So how do we think about this kind of, a, of an issue to begin to come to grips with what's going on here? Uh, as the brain tackles these problems and shifts it, its resources from one mode of behavior to another as we see it in these imaging experiments. This has been a difficult problem to sort out, and I'm going to try to give you a reasonable explanation of how to think about it for a minute here, and I hope I can succeed. <laughs> Let us imagine for a moment that we have this uh, experiment, kind of like the one I've been telling you about, so that there are four conditions. The one I've talked about, opening the eyes, looking at the words, reading the words, and then generating verbs. So imagine some kind of a paradigm like that. And let's say that we're tracking some region in the brain during this time, and in condition two, whatever that might be, it tends, it goes up. Its activity, its blood flow increases. Now, if we come along later and start comparing uh, condition two with condition one, we see it as an increase in activity. But nothing prevents us, of course, from comparing three to two, and now uh, we define a decrease. And the minute you start talking about decreases, somebody says, well, shoot, you just, you know, you don't know what's going on in your control state. It was obviously activated, and you just it was turned off. And it's not an uninteresting explanation, but not half as interesting as I think the real story is here. The other way of looking at it is that, in fact, there is what has been very elusive to people over the years, a real resting state of the brain. Now, people always argue when you bring up a concept like this that, well, what do you mean by this? I mean, you're sitting in this room, some of you may be dozing, thinking about any number of things, a few listening to the talk. But if we were to image you, there would be all sorts of different kind of images in all of this. And what I would suggest is that that's probably not necessarily the case, that if we left everything else go, that you will default to a specific state here. And it's based on the notion of being able to define a real decrease so that we really have an area that actually has some baseline activity and goes down in some condition. And then when we look at it properly, we see that decrease. Well, of course, depending on what sort of games we play, we could also see it as an increase. So these are the kind of gymnastics that people that look at the imaging world are wrestling with or playing around and doing. The way out of this, uh, I think, is to come back to what we mean by an activation in the brain. And as I kind of belabored a bit at the outset, these imaging techniques have defined that very clearly. And that is that it is an increase in blood flow without an increase of, of any significance in the oxygen consumption. And hence, we get this decreased extraction or increased local oxygenation of the tissue. So with that in mind, and the tools capable of making these measurements directly, we ought therefore to be able to go into the brain and simply uh, look at the particular areas that are behaving like this and ask, are they activated or aren't they uh, in this so-called resting state? Well, for those of us that have had the opportunity to kind of sit in the middle of this world, uh, uh, Part of it has been to collect this very kind of data for completely other reasons. But the mental picture that we always had of it was that the relationships within the brain 
between the amount of oxygen it uses and the amount of blood flow that's provided is remarkably dull and uninteresting. It's pretty uniform across the whole brain. And this is just a view of that, uh, that relationship. And while there is a little green along the midline here, this scale depicts a very uniform set of relationships, which is even more dramatic uh, when seen here. This simply thresholds this relationship at the average for the brain. And if, in fact, these areas that we see plummeting in activity, which reside in here and right along in here, if they were, in fact, specifically activated by just laying there with your eyes closed, we'd see them, and we don't. So one has to conclude that, in fact, many of these areas that we see routinely going down are not coming at down from an activated state. Well, this may seem kind of dull and uninteresting, particularly at 8.45 in the evening, but what it provides us suddenly is some leverage in terms of what is going on in these areas and why they might behave like this. So what we end up uh, with in terms of a kind of a physiological concept is that we have a baseline in the middle here and what imaging is providing is a view of the brain increasing and decreasing its activity in very specific and logical ways. And so it, it all kind of plays out and looks like that, and I won't belabor this. Well, again, serendipity plays a funny role in science. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Wayne Drevitz, who was very much interested in the study of depression, uh, needed for his control subjects, uh, needed control data uh, to compare with his subjects. And what you're looking at is the metabolic rate for glucose for a group of 22 completely normal people laying quietly in a scanner with their eyes closed. Now, I don't know whether what struck me about this strikes you about it as well, but look at what's hot. This area right here and extending around into the medial orbital frontal cortex. The hottest area in the brain, in the resting awake brain, is not activated but active and it's in the very area that gets turned off every time we devote our attention to a particular task. So with this kind of leverage, we can then begin to ask, what is, a, what is this default state that you and I and probably virtually everybody in this room kind of go to when we're not busy doing something else? And what conceivably could this mean? If we look at these areas, again, these are the two prominent midline areas that decrease. You can see if you measure their metabolism uh, and blood flow, they really match up rather nicely, just as I said. So taking, to begin with, this area here, what do we know about this? What, what conceivably might, might such an area be doing? And I, I have to confess at the outset, I don't have a good answer for this, but I would like to introduce an idea or two. Initially, when we saw this going on as virtually every laboratory doing this kind of work, uh, we had no clue. And in fact, in our laboratory, uh, it, it became known as MMPA, for the Medial Mystery Parietal Area. <laughs> and the file got thicker and thicker of these observations, both our own and others, the oh, by the way, and we saw. And each time it came up, the plot thickened, and it made no sense. It was just there and it wasn't clear. 
until I heard, a, personally for me anyway, heard this lecture, heard a lecture by Carol Colby, and I must say I probably heard it three times at least, and I probably had seen this three times, but it wasn't until the third time that it hit home. What you have here is the unfolded cortex of a monkey, and what she has depicted in this, and this is kind of an odd-looking picture for those of you who haven't seen it, but kind of imagine that you can peel away the brain and just lay it out flat and look at the visual cortex. So uh, this doesn't look very brain-like for those of you not used to looking at this, those of you who have seen it know it right away. Uh, but the point is that the areas that that piece of brain represents in terms of the part, the central part of your vision are distinguished and can be distinguished from the parts that represent the periphery of our visual world. Now, whether this translates directly to the human, what it planted in our minds was the notion that we have a distinction between what the brain represents in the world at large versus what it represents in terms of things that we would attend to. And so the question then that comes up would be, well, from an evolutionary point of view, it might make good sense if we monitor the world around us when we are not specifically required to attend to something under such circumstances, we might well want to filter out unnecessary information. But for survival, for selection of mates, for the finding of food, it's very nice to be as a default state monitoring the world around us. So, what evidence in humans do we have? Well, there are a number of lines of, think, uh, of evidence that one can bring to bear on this, and I won't belabor this tonight, but I would just present what I consider to be a fairly dramatic hint about what might be going on, or that what I've just said made some sense. It's in the form of a relatively unusual clinical syndrome known as balance syndrome. These individuals, as I'll show you in a moment, uh, have damage to this particular part of the brain along the midline deep within the back that occasionally spreads out on either side. And they have this most remarkable characteristic that their world is as if it was constructed of a tunnel. It is as if they had a zoom lens in which they, have, they simply can't relax to look at the rest of the world. And so that when they attempt to look at, say, two objects simultaneously, they only see one. And this is despite the fact that when you test their visual fields, they seem to be normal in, in size, and yet show them two objects, they only see one. So kind of imagine that if your world, you make a little thing like this, and imagine that perceptually your world is something kind of like this. You could maybe get a rough feel of what uh, this uh, would be like. And if you... Look at the one patient that I had occasion to uh, see when I was a, an attending neurologist. I think you might be able to appreciate the damage that has occurred in this patient as right along the midline, extending right into this area. So I would suggest that uh, one of the functions of areas in this default state of the brain, which is suspended uh, when uh, we go about other tasks, but which resumes without any intention on our part, has to do with some broad type of monitoring function, which makes some sense, at least to me. At least it makes a good just-so story. Now, what about its companion up here in front? We have a big swath of what's known as orbital frontal cortex coming along the midline and splaying out over the orbits uh, that has been traditionally associated with 
emotional function uh, and the like because of what it's connected to and because of a variety of observations that have been made in both experimental animals and humans. And again, the uh, most dramatic clinical example of damage to this area was, of course, the famous case of Phineas Gage. And many of you uh, may recall this case was a, a, a gentleman who was an upstanding and socially appropriate man uh, working as a railroad supervisor and had a tragic accident in which a, a steel rod was blasted up through his orbit and literally took out the orbital frontal cortex. Now, considerably additional damage was done, obviously, but the impact of it was to this area. And ever thereafter, he was simply unable to make appropriate social judgments and did all sorts of bizarre and entertaining uh, things until his death. Uh, and since then, others have studied, particularly the Damasios in Iowa, the implications of losing uh, this area. But what one can consider under these circumstances, then, is uh, a, a more broadly based system of monitoring in the back of the brain and in areas in the orbital frontal cortex region that somehow or other play a role in the evaluation of this kind of incoming information. And I really don't want to oversimplify this at the moment because we're talking very broadly about a whole constellation of areas. But it, 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 I think it's a reasonable way to think about it. What kind of evidence could one even begin to bring to the table about this? Well, let us suppose for the moment that we make you anxious, really anxious. That is, we put some electrodes on the fingers of two of one of your hands, and we tell you during the course of a brief experiment that sometime during that experiment, you're going to get a shock, and that it will be painful. It won't hurt you, but it won't be pleasant. And as the experiment proceeds, which is only 40 seconds long, the longer you go without the shock, the more painful it will be. <laughs> However, we never deliver the shock. Uh, only a minor shock later on. And this is work that we had published on uh, years ago for completely other reasons, uh, and we've con continue to work on this. But one of the interesting features is that you're not all the same in your reaction to this kind of an experiment. Some of you get exceedingly nervous. Others of you are remarkably calm. So the question is, what is going on in the brain that might distinguish those of you who are calm under these stressful circumstances and those of you who are mightily distressed? And there is a very remarkable correlation. That is, those of you that are remarkably stressed under this circumstance maintain this high level of activity in your orbital frontal cortex. And those of you who are not, to varying degrees, suppress it. So its presence, while not conferring this emotional state, in some way allows it. Now, we've tried to contain, carry this forward a bit into a, a more cognitive uh, paradigm. As you recall, um, when you did this verb generate task, you see these reductions that actually go down further as you learn the task. And thinking for the moment that if we put most of the people in this room into a testing situation in which we were asking you to generate verbs for nouns, you would feel 
I think, probably compelled to do the best job possible, particularly if some eager postdoc was looking at you and if you were like me and you didn't want to look old and senile, you'd, be, you'd want to do well. So it was reasonable to anticipate that this was an anxiety-provoking set of circumstances that in which the anxiety would dissipate as you learn the task. And so uh, with that in mind, we looked first at the effect of practice on the activity in this area. And indeed, somewhat surprisingly, even with limited data, by God, when you practice, again, from a resting state, this area declines as you get more comfortable with doing the task. So it doesn't, it's not all or none, but it's graded. So then we just asked the rather simple question, well, how anxious are you? And uh, a graduate student working with me, Joe Simpson, is involved. This is just the learning curve that I've showed in the past. This is a self-rating anxiety scale for the verb generate task. And not surprisingly, you're fairly nervous here. And with practice, it goes away. And we can return it by introducing the novel nouns. And your heart rate goes up, the whole thing. So as we try to understand what these areas are doing and put them into the context of the little experiment that I introduced at the outset, we have a tremendous allocation of resources going on in the brain. And that as we think about this and using, use these techniques, that we have to think in kind of in more than one dimension, that the cerebral cortex is not a place that is activated or not. It can be activated, it can be deactivated, and it is also selectively active as a default state. There's been a great deal of interest in such things as the neural correlates of consciousness. And in looking at, say, something simple like the verb generate task, you could have taken through all the positive parts of it and said, ah, here's a task. We can, we can add our few areas to, to the neural correlates of consciousness. That is, those areas that are brought into play when a task is new, difficult, and novel, which disappear when it becomes habitual. But then you're left with the nagging question, but geez, I'm not unconscious when I've learned the task. And then you can resort to arguments about, well, it's random this, that, and the other thing. But I would submit that given no other stimulus, there is a default state at work here. We have, through imaging, a way to look at that and to ask some interesting do uh, questions about how the human brain works. Well, I will close with a, I was a, a good friend visited St. Louis and publicly announced that uh, she was worried that uh, I was still hung up with phonology. I do want to disabuse you of that publicly. <laughs> As you know, uh, this was a fashion many, going back many years to find out to assign to different areas of the brain particular functions that we define in terms of our everyday behavior, love, hate, mathematical competence, you name it, they were on these uh, skulls and the like. And I think what has emerged out of this, I would like to think, is a very much different view. While these people were right in some ways that the brain parse, parses out functions, uh, they are not defined in terms of these uh, rather uh, general uh, descriptors of our behavior. And you chuckle, and I smile when I use a thing like that, but I don't think we've really moved all that far away from it. Uh, there are a number of examples. Uh, this is one that comes immediately to mind. Those of you who read the New York Times read this article on Eric Kandel, and this was on the cover. 
but it typifies stuff that appears in there and continues to appear and tends to seduce us into the belief that what we're going after here are areas that are definable in terms of even things like emotion. And I want to leave you not with that notion, but rather our chore is to figure out more fundamental functions that occur in large networks. And the analogy that I find most appealing, maybe because my other life is as a musician, is a symphony orchestra in which we do have yet unnumbered, finite number of players. And yet we have this infinite array of behavior and that with this kind of imaging work, we are beginning to get a view of the orchestra. It's like going from listening to a recording to going to a live performance. And our chore, of course, is to then figure out how this ensemble somehow or other plays out the behavior. The final point is, of course, is to go back from this to this. And that is that uh, as Interesting as the work any of us do in this, uh, in our scientific uh, life, particularly in this one, we are very dependent on work that is going on all over this spectrum. Uh, and I think the beauty of imaging uh, is that it makes the human being a serious player in the world of science or cognitive neuroscience, but doesn't supplant any of the rest of it. Thank you very much for your attention. Dr. Eckel will um, entertain some questions. Well, you, um, you indicated uh, in the last uh, part of the talk that different people will respond to uh, the same sorts of situations in different ways. Um, to what extent does that uh, something uh, which has developed over the experiences in the lifetime of the individual as being something that's been there genetically determined. Uh, do you have any information about that? I mean, I, I couldn't do any, any better job of speculating than you could. Uh, I, I, the, imaging, the imaging work um, up to the last few years had focused largely on what, we, that, what groups of people did what were commonalities, but partly that was technical, but not solely, uh, and I think it was a useful perspective. But the imaging techniques that we now have, particularly with MR, uh, produce beautiful data in a single subject in a single setting in many instances. So now we can begin to ask questions having to do with individual differences. And where performance, difference, performance differences exist, we can ask the question, are they a reflection of a different actual internal strategy of the brain in performing the task. And there are some limited examples of this in the literature presently, but there will, I'm sure, be more. So it's something that could definitely be uh, looked at. But it played right into our hands in terms of this issue of emotion. Uh, it, 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 yes. Two questions. First. Um, is thinking, behavior thing, is a well-defined behavior? Thinking. Yeah, it's a well thinking. Is this a well-defined behavior within the tools and the vocabulary of imaging? 
Is it? Is it? I'm asking you. Mean the generic term thinking. Yeah, I say, I think. Because the question is because you use closing eyes, reading vocabulary, it requires an external definable stimulus yes. to the imaging. So I think which in general we understand. I, I think I understand what no, yeah. People have done, if you will, thinking experiments um, in which uh, various things have been asked of a subject, to per asking them to perform it during a scanning period uh, in which there was no stimulus or anything. And indeed, you can see changes, uh, uh, very, very clear-cut changes. And it was actually imposed on us in, in, to some degree uh, at the early work with MRI, because you're, as you, you know, the environment, you're down this funny long tube and these high magnetic fields and getting things in and out was a problem. So uh, uh, experiments were done in which there was little input or output, but presumed changes. Does that answer your question? I mean, you, 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 no, can, I, you can ask, a, you, you can instruct a subject to perform a very specific task without a stimulus occurring during the imaging experiment. And gratifyingly, if you do this and, and know beforehand what you would have expected had you delivered X, Y, or Z, it's remarkable how well that's played out. Second question. That, um, I don't know. That, that uh, in um, your description gave the impression, probably, I. I got it incorrectly. I probably didn't the, give it this really. Phenomenological description of the brain. Yes. Now, how is this useful to us? How is it useful? Well, I, I, I guess my my view of it is that uh, it has a number of utilities. Um, it has some practical utility in terms of taking care of patients, for example, with neurological disease. We have for years operated on the basis of damaged nervous systems and tried to infer what damage in particular areas or others would imply for the well-being of a particular subject. And yet we had no clear idea what these areas did normally or the spectrum of areas that were in fact involved. So it's like having an owner's manual to your car. It's a doggone sight easier to work on it, to understand, to at least advise people. The best example I can think of is the um, early discovery that the cerebellum is involved in cognitive behavior. Uh, this had never been suspected before. Uh, when people have injury to this big piece of brain back here, uh, characteristically they exhibit marked motor abnormalities. They're speech is slurred, their motor movements are discoordinated, and it is so dramatic that neurologists like myself and others focused entirely on this. Come to find out this piece of brain, a big, big part of it, has, has very little directly to do with motor behavior, but is directly related to the cognitive behavior of the subject. And one only simply has to ask the right question. And when you ask the right question based on what we now know about the normal nervous system, we find out that such patients are significantly disabled cognitively. Now you could say, well, of what use is that? I don't know whether you've ever been a patient, but if you have, I think, as I have and many others in this room, it is important at the outset to know that somebody knows why you have a problem. 
and uh, it, it, it is easy to advise somebody who has difficulty under these circumstances to say, in the case of the cerebellar lesion, the reason you're not coping is it was a stressful illness. It is to me much more gratifying to say to somebody, we know precisely what this problem is and how to think about it. But I, you know, I guess there are a lot of thinking could go on about uh, how reading is performed or how any number of other uh, cognitive activities or emotional activities might theoretically be constructed. But I think a touchstone with how it is actually occurring is important to our understandings and theories of how the brain works. And I think that is essential in understanding human behaviors at very high levels that have major social implications. I, I think we're having such a, uh, a ball with functional MRI. It's, 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 it's a technique that's evolving so fast and has so much flexibility to it technologically that we're, we're still growing into this. But there are some really interesting things on the horizon. There, uh, one of the things that's really important here is, okay, we can lay out this area, this area and so forth, but one of the key issues here is timing. And I've said nothing about timing tonight. And while MR speaks or may speak to a degree to timing issues, the electrical techniques, by their very nature, have it hands down. The only problem with them is we can't figure out where these signals are coming from, for sure. But think for a moment of the possibility that you combine these techniques and that you let fMRI say, okay, here are the generators. Now let's look at the temporal relationships among these potential generators. And a number of groups are doing this, and I think that's really going to be neat. Uh, but it involves a wedding two fairly large technologies, particularly if you get to magnetic field recordings, the sheer dollar sense magnitude of it is as big as doing imaging. And uh, whether that's going to be, how that's going to play out, I don't know. There are other simpler techniques. Uh, uh, because of this change in the oxygenation of the cortex, of course, that affects light. Uh, and so, as you know, certain wavelengths of light pass right through the, the skull and everything. We're totally transparent to that. And, of course, if you pass it through at certain wavelengths, it will be affected by these changes in the hemoglobin. And it seemed like for a while that, that there would be no way to recover that signal simply because light gets scattered in there. But amazingly, uh, people are now constructing devices with remarkable spatial resolution that it can at least look at the surface of the brain and they're embedding them uh, in motorcycle helmets. There's a tremendous amount of work going on at the University of Missouri in Columbia and I must say I'm quite amazed. Now you'd say, well, why would you do it that way if you could do it with a, a two million dollar gadget? Well, you can immediately imagine why because there are experiments you could answer with this and there are circumstances in which an imaging device is not the ideal environment in which to work. And then there is the whole issue of development and children. And I think a very important part of, of this imaging enterprise in terms of understanding how these systems work and how to think about them is to understand their, their, their developmental history. Because uh, we weren't born with all this. And uh, so there are groups now studying children which uh, 
I, I, I think is very encouraging. And then the other thing, that MR is going to play some fun games. Uh, there is now a very large interest in, and I think highly promising evidence, that MR can do track tracing in the nervous system, that we will be able to do mapping of what's connected to what. And as uh, this has to do with 